The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. A number of years ago, in uh, January of 1996, I had the privilege to go to some refugee camps and uh, preach a message of reconciliation because we were invited by a dear brother. And that dear brother is with us today. And uh, so, Dr. Celestin Musakura, where are you, bro? Come up here. And would you welcome my dear friend and hero in the faith, Celestin Musakura. Welcome, my brother. Good to see you again. It's been a long time since the last hour. So, there we go. Long time. So, there he goes. And with him is his dear wife, Bernadette. Bernadette, would you stand so they can see who you are? There we go. Behind every good man is a strong woman, and uh, he is blessed as I am to have a strong woman who walks with God, fears God, loves God, and supports him in ministry. And so, uh, Celestin, how many, a lot of you are new to TBC. How many of you, it's been a couple of years since he's been with us, how many of you have not heard Celestin at TBC before? Let me see your hands. Raise them high, keep them high. So take a look around. A lot of you, that's great. So you're in for a treat today. Uh, we're going to do an interview format where... I ask the questions, he gives the answers, and he's not allowed to ask me any questions. So that's how we go about this this morning. So uh, for a number of years, we've had a great relationship. So uh, first of all, you can bring greetings to the folks and then tell us a little bit about your family. How's that? We'll start there. Thank you. Um, my family is uh, currently scattered, and uh, except my wife who's here, and I'm glad she's here. Uh, we have uh, four children, and recently we added our Fifty one, but uh, on the some people ask me, Do you have three daughters? You know, because uh, my wife in the middle and my daughters, they all look like my daughters, you know. <laughs> that's good. He's a smart man when it comes to marriage. We've been talking about that a lot, so that's good. Yeah, his wife th- looks like his daughter. Yeah, I thought four years, you know, is experience. That's good. Uh, on your right, uh, Providence, uh, some of you know Providence, women, uh, she lived here for. For three years, when she was doing her residency at uh, Scotland White Hospital, uh, she is uh, married. She married last year uh, to Emmanuel Okalet. Uh, on the top uh, left picture, that uh, she got married last year. But uh, Providence. So, so when she, let me stop you for a minute. So in Africa, when uh, girls get married, the uh, family gets cows. Is that right? Uh, yeah, they get uh, gifts. They get cows. Many cows. So how many cows did you get for your daughter? Uh, you know, <clears throat> uh, when they came to expect us to ask how many cows, I look at her and I started counting. You know, she's learned, she's smart, she's educated. I was counting how many cows, how much, how much money I would have. But then uh, my wife told me to say she's not for sale. <laughs> No That's cow. Great. That's great. <laughs> so you don't have cattle yet. That's no, not happening. Okay. I'm still a poor pasta. You don't know cows. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she's married a year ago. They live in uh, outside of Nairobi in Kenya, and she's a medical missionary, and her husband's with... Uh, a Presbyterian uh, Missionary Hospital. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So she's, she's a medical doctor missionary at the Chogoria Hospital, and uh, she's actually still has two more months to go, and uh, then she, they continue to pray how God will use them after this, uh, this next two months. So by November, she would have done the two-year commitment she made to 
um, Samaritan's Purse. That's great. That's great. Okay, we made it through one daughter. We better keep the rolling. The second here. daughter. <laughs> our second daughter on, uh, on the left, uh, her name is Prudence. Uh, she's living in Nairobi, though she's uh, uh, working in uh, West Africa as a, a consultant for the Norwegian organization helping the government of Liberia, Sierra Leone, and the Ivory Coast to develop a system that allows the government money uh, to be taken, not to be taken by the government officials, really uh, fighting corruption so that funds given for minerals, for oil, for natural resources can be used for development. So she works uh, to build a system called uh, Revenue Development Foundation where government can control the money for the development. Hmm. And so she's in Nairobi. Uh, she lived in Liberia for 18 months and then she almost went to resign because life was difficult. They told her not to resign, but she can decide where to live. And she decided to go to, back to Nairobi. So she travels back and forth to West Africa from East Africa. Hmm. And then we have two, uh, two boys. Uh, Samuel on the right is uh, involved in the youth ministry at the Baptist Church, and First Baptist Church of Richardson. But uh, recently, actually, he came and uh, he said uh, uh, he has been going to Latvia for about six years uh, leading youth. Uh, groups. Uh, two weeks ago he came and said, Mom and Dad, I want you to know that uh, I may go to Latvia for one year or one year and a half to help start a young adult service at the church plant that the church was planting. So he's a missionary. He's involved in a, uh, also in other ministries, business. Uh, he does land survey for a, an engineering company. Hmm. Our youngest, Emmanuel. And, uh, just, I told Celeste, and just last week I received an email or text message actually from a young man who grew up at TBC who goes to First Baptist Richard, and he said, uh, Pastor Gary, do you know, I don't know why I'm doing that, I don't have a phone up here, <laughs> but, uh, Pastor Gary, do you happen to know a young man named Samuel? Musa Yeah, I can't say that name, so Samuel. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, I know him very well. In fact, his mom and dad are going to be with us this weekend at TBC. And he said, great, he is, uh, I've met him at First Baptist Richardson this week. Yeah, it's uh, funny, this morning, the first service, uh, I met um, the father of the young man who sent you a text, he was telling me that, oh, my son told me uh, your son was teaching him. Uh, I said, oh, yes, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's, he's a good preacher, actually, and uh, thank God. Uh, we didn't know he was going to be a preacher. He's quiet, but he's, he's very, he's, uh, he loves the Lord and Amen. he loves the ministry. Yeah. Amen. Our youngest, Emmanuel, uh, Emmanuel uh, three weeks ago, we kicked him out of our house. <laughs> and uh, so he's... Um, He's working for a communication company in Dallas, and uh, um, we decided that it is time for him to get out of the house. And so he's living with his friends. He has an apartment. So, so he's growing, and he was complaining, but we had to kick him out. Because yeah, he, he said in Africa, he lived with mom and dad to get married, right? Yeah, in Africa, yeah. It would, you live with your parents until you get married. And so he said, but dad, this is not fair. I'm supposed to be with you until I get married. I say, we say, no, this is not Africa. Go. You have to go. <laughs> <laughs> you have to grow up, you know. <laughs> this is America. That's you know? great. Emmanuel, there's a great story about Emmanuel. The first time they came here, Emmanuel was about three years old. And uh, we used to have steps here, not this stage, a little different stage. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, first time, I mean, they've lived in Africa their whole life. And uh, so poor Emmanuel, first, second week in America, I can't remember, something like that. And we bring him up, we introduce him, he's looking out on this sea of people, and he just plops down the stage and starts wailing. 
And uh, so Celestin said, what's wrong? And he said, too many white people. Uh, yes, uh, he was uh, traumatized, so I told, <laughs> I told him, son, I'm, sometimes I'm scared of these white people too. So. <laughs> and uh, actually there was another event he could not uh, control himself. I remember actually it's Ellen, who is sitting here, Ellen. Ellen and Pam Gickerson, they actually comforted him because I was already speaking. He could not come to the, uh, to the podium. So uh, Ellen started moving him around because this boy had never seen more, more than two white people together, you know? <laughs> and so, and, uh, so he survived and now he's, he's grown. Now he's <laughs> Go live with them. In fact, he's living, his roommate is a white man. So. Oh, wow. <laughs> Things have changed. Things have changed, yeah. So uh, the picture in front of us now is where we met, actually. We, well, it's where we ended up. We met Celestin. Uh, he was at a conference in Korea in 1995. The killings of Rwanda started in 1994. He sat next to a gentleman named Ramesh Richard, who's a professor at Dallas Seminary. Uh, there was a good friend of ours working for Ramesh, who had been at TBC for a number of years when he was at Fort Hood. And uh, Ramesh asked Celestin, anything we can do? And you said, yes, there are some pastors who are refugees in Congo, it was Zaire at the time, but Congo now, and could you send a team in there to minister to these pastors because they're traumatized and they've lost hope, and uh, so tell us what we're looking at here. Uh, you are looking at uh, what is called a refugee camp. Those are tents that people try to make house, and each of those is a family, and uh, on this horizon, in this area of Congo, uh, there were about two million people who are living in those refugee camps. Uh, what had happened in Rwanda in 1994, you probably heard about it and maybe read about it or maybe you saw Hotel Rwanda movie, but within three months, one million people were killed. One million people One were killed. million people were killed within three months. And this was because of hatred and between the two tribes, two main tribes, Hutu and Tutsis, and uh, bad leaders who used tribe to manipulate themselves into leadership and then divide the people and the people began to kill each other. So one million people were killed, then about three million people left the country and uh, about two million found themselves in the camps near in Congo outside the uh, uh, Goma town and the other, another one million uh, found themselves in Tanzania. And so this is the camp where people died literally for the first three months Every day, about 3,000 people died of cholera, dysentery, and typhoid. Uh, just every day for the first three months before the U.S. Marine came to purify the water. So this is the camp where uh, then uh, you and the team uh, found yourself in after we spent a few days in Nairobi. You know, we met uh, Celestine and Bernadette. We went to their, I'd never been to Africa, first trip I'd taken, and... Uh, so all we knew is that we're supposed to meet this guy and uh, he's going to take us into refugee camps. Well, we had no idea what we're getting into, to be honest with you. So uh, we get on a little mission, mission aviation fellowship plane. It was a six-seater and uh, we fly over um, Lake Kivu, which borders Rwanda and Congo, and we land on a runway close to those volcanoes. And uh, the first night he starts telling us his story, which we did not know. And he said last time he was in the camps, he had been threatened. His life had been threatened. And so now we're thinking, what in the heck have we gotten ourselves into now? We're sitting at this little place, and uh, it's a Baptist guest house, uh, cinder block walls, corrugated tin. 
And he's telling us about that. And the next thing we know, the electricity goes off. And so for us, we had three Americans, me and two other guys from TBC. Uh, I mean, we're scared to death. For him, it's an event that takes place all the time. And then it sounds like the whole thing, like somebody's shooting at us the whole time. And uh, come to find out, some monkeys had gotten on the roof of that building. They were throwing avocados down. <laughs> And they got the wires crossed, and man, it was, those monkeys scared us half to death. We were, they were testing your faith. They you tested know? our faith. <laughs> but the whole point of that was, uh, Celestin told us eventually in that conversation, he said, well, uh, it's safe here now because there's not been, or the roads are safe, not in the camps, but the roads are safe because it's been quite a while since any trucks have been blown up. So now we're really listening, and we said, well, it's a good thing it's been quite a while. How long has it been? He said, at least 30 days. And it gave me perspective that I never had before. Um, Life, 3,000 people dying a day. 30 days was a long time. For us, 30 days is no time. And uh, I really began to think he has become, over the years, one of my heroes of the faith. But that was the first glimpse I had into the kind of man he was. And actually, the thought of Africans at that time, Rwandese especially. And so... Uh, it certainly endeared my heart to him and uh, made me glad that about it went 35 days. Uh, we were there for five days, so 35 days before he got blown up after that. So that, that was a blessing. So um, this is a picture of, uh, tell them a little bit about what we're seeing here. Uh, on the far right, uh, we have a small group of pastors. That's, those are original pastors. We had about 280, something, about 300 pastors in a small room in the camp. So the refugee camp you saw, some of these pastors who were there, some of them had lost their wives and their children. Some of them had witnessed their members of their congregation killing one another. Some of those pastors had gone to do ministry to go back home to find their wives and their children chopped in pieces. Some of those pastors had hidden members of their congregation in their home when the militia or the rebels came and said, Pastor Jonas or Pastor Gary or Celestine, you're hiding the wrong people. Give them up or we blow your house with the grenade. You know, none of us will know what we will do if that happened to us. Unfortunately, some of these pastors had given up the people that they were hiding and those people were killed in front of their houses. Some pastors who survived also had been preaching on Sunday, like today, when the militia or the rebels came and picked the wrong people from the pews, and they keep them in the parking lot. What had happened during the genocide, about between 65 and 70% of the church leaders had been murdered. And so those who had survived, many of them were quitting because of shame, guilt. Some were saying, where was God when my wife and six children were killed? Uh, Others were saying, why didn't I die with my congregation? Why did I give them up? Others would say, can I be forgiven? Can I be a pastor again? And so that was the challenge the pastors were having. And as it happens often, uh, when things happen to communities like Rwanda, it happens to pastors. We pastors were not immune, immune to terrible things happening to our communities. Unfortunately, people don't stop coming to pastors for help, even when the pastors themselves are traumatized. And so our calling began to work on how do we first deal with the killing that happened in Rwanda even when the Christians killed each other. Because what had happened in Rwanda with Christianity, there were more of conversion, but there was no discipleship. 
people came to Christ, but they were loyal to their tribe. They were, just like in America, some people are loyal to their own race or their own parties and so forth. That's why Christians killed each other in Rwanda, not knowing that their identity in Christ supersedes their tribal identity. That's why the main issue we dealt with. But secondly, the other issue was, how do we preach forgiveness and reconciliation as Christians if pastors themselves are not healed? In fact, when we began to work with the pastors in the camp, mm. pastors would say, I know somebody who killed my wife and four mm. children. Can I go kill them and then forgive after? Mm. So this is where the first group that Pastor Gary and, and the TBC people sent, they were helping this pastor to deal with their own uh, grief, their own anger, their own bitterness, their, their shame, and their doubt if God can forgive them and if God can use them again. They were completely traumatized. Every single person, almost 300 men, um, had experienced the loss, the murder, actually, of either a spouse, a child, or someone in their congregation, every one of them. And so you can imagine the trauma. And then they are placed in a refugee camp. They flee to a refugee camp. And uh, by God's grace, we were the first team to go in there and minister to them. And uh, it brought about uh, tremendous, uh, it was just a tremendous time for all of us. I mean, one of the most humbling experiences of my life. And then to see that. And so uh, fast forward 10 years to the middle picture. Uh, the middle picture uh, is now in Rwanda. So the far left is in the refugee camp in Congo. The middle picture is in Rwanda. I know Bev was there and the other member of the church. So 10 years later, these pastors who were really restored back into the ministry, who were restored back to their faith, uh, of course, between uh, the right picture and the middle picture, there are 10 years. But in the 10 years, this church continued to support the alarm financially and sending teams uh, to minister to our uh, people in, in the camp, sending funding and and raising up, I talk about our kids, literally our, my kids, but then I, our kids were raised in this church and the Gikasons and the Wolves and the others. That's who raised our kids. Ten years, the pastors in Rwanda said, we re- were restored back in the ministry. We were healed and we dealt with our own anger and blame of God. We would like to have a, a reunion with Gary. We would Gary come back because without Gary in the temple, Bible church, we would not be back in the ministry. And so Gary and uh, Bev and others came to, to Rwanda in Gisenyi for a reunion. So that's the middle picture of the reunion. Of course, the left picture is uh, Craig Ludwig. And when I was young, before the Americans made me a fat bubble. <laughs> <laughs> Craig is a man who introduced us to Celestine and was part of our body and also introduced us to our sister church in Ukraine as well. So... My great, one, of, one of the fun memories of that conference in the middle is uh, I was up preaching and uh, teaching these pastors and their wives, and uh, all of a sudden, somebody bursts in the room, they grab a man, take him out, and I don't know, five minutes later, he comes running back in screaming. Uh, his wife had, had, was pregnant, and she had given birth on the, on the dorm floor at that time, and they named the baby Alarm, the <laughs> ministry that he founded as Alarm. So they named the baby Alarm that day. So yes. it was a great memory. I mean, yeah, I, probably not for her, but for us it was. Uh, good news and bad news. Uh, one of the reasons why these pastors wanted actually to have a union, uh, Gary, you remember, <laughs> in the camp, Gary talked about... Uh, when he was leaving uh, to come, he was talking to the pastor that he kissed uh, his wife by. 
Now pastors, many of them start crying. Mm. And, uh, and the girl said, why are they crying? And they said, are they afraid of kissing? I told him it's because most of them, their wives are dead. They have nobody to kiss. I'll never forget that. I was teaching the book of Hosea. Yes. And brought that up. And Slustin's translating for me. And they just start weeping. All these men start weeping. And we just stopped. And I said, brother, what's happening here? And uh, most of these men's wives, uh, the men who were weeping uh, had lost their wives. Their wives had been murdered and kids had been murdered. Yeah, and some of them had separated from their wives. They didn't know if they were dead or alive. So anyway, 10 years later, some who had, had lost their wives had remarried. And so this specific uh, pastor, his wife was very pregnant. And uh, she said, I'm going to see the man, but also to see Gary. But also some of these pastors and their wives, they never had time together where somebody ministered to them. So she was very pregnant. She came. So on the second day of the, of the training, she gave birth. <laughs> and uh, she went just to the dormitory and gave birth. And the name is the alarm. So we have babies around there. <laughs> <laughs> and she came back to the conference the next day. Next day, yeah. <laughs> She's tough, I'm telling you. Alarm stands for African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries, and that's the ministry that uh, was birthed by you and Bernadette. It started a couple of years before the killings. Uh, but tell us, tell us what it means. Tell us the mission of Alarm. Uh, the mission of Alarm really is to develop servant leaders in the church and the community. Uh, one of the biggest challenges we have, again, in Africa, we have leaders, but our leaders are either colonial in their thinking, they lead for themselves, they divide the people. I mean, the war of, in Rwanda between the Hutu and Tutsis, people live together in peace for many years. But the leaders, because of their selfishness, they divide the people so that they can remain in power. And so the leaders we have both in the church and the government, they use their leadership to enrich themselves. So we began to think about how do we develop servant leaders in the church, but also in the community because we have Christians who are in a position in the government, they are lawyers, they are judges, they are members of parliament, they are Christians, but they don't understand how their faith must impact their daily lives. And so we focus on African leadership for Africans to deal with African issues. But we all know that the church has been given the message of reconciliation. In a country like Rwanda, where atrocities, neighbors have murdered neighbors, children, wives, and husbands, how can the church become an instrument of hope, healing, and forgiveness. And how can we become agents for reconciliation? And so that's what we stand for. Really, our mission is to develop servant leaders in the church and the community who reconcile and transform lives affected by injustice. And it's amazing to see what God has done in that ministry. So it started in their living room, literally. And uh, over the years, God has blessed them. They're near a multi or international ministry in Africa, uh, you're in eight different nations. What are the nations you guys are in now as a ministry? Uh, we are in, uh, in Rwanda, of course, where we began, and then in Kenya. Actually, in Kenya, we have our many offices. The main office is in Nairobi. It's not the Dallas office, fundraising, fundraising. But in Kenya, we have a Kenyan office and the main office. Then we have uh, Uganda, then uh, uh, Tanzania, then uh, Burundi, Congo, Sudan, and South Sudan. So Rwanda, Burundi, Congo, those are French. And then the English countries, Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Sudan, and South Sudan. We have all together in eight countries, 65 full-time staff who are trained, who are theologians, who are lawyers, who are social workers, who are really changing lives in their communities and who are responding to the needs in their communities and who stay there 
when other have fled, other organizations have run away because of the security. Bev and I were invited to do a marriage conference for the staff. There's a staff team that they had uh, three years ago. There have been some changes, obviously, in three years, but uh, we were outside of Nairobi at a retreat center, and uh, it was just a real delight to be with these families and to hear what God is doing through them and through the ministry of Alarm. And uh, the stories, I mean, story after story after story. So let's focus on one nation. Let's focus on mm. South Sudan. And uh, there, there's been a lot of wars. There's been a lot of struggles in South Sudan. And uh, give us just a, a smidgen of their history, if you will, and then we'll talk about the pastors. Uh, South Sudan uh, now is uh, a free nation, independent nation as of uh, July 2011. For many years, um, the country of Sudan... Uh, had uh, it was one country with the capital uh, Khartoum, but the north of Sudan are more Muslim and uh, Arab, the south more black animists, you know, um, non Christians, but also Christians. After the British gave independence to Sudan, the leaders of Sudan divi- decided to turn the whole country, the whole country, into an Islamic country. They obliged and insisted, in fact, imposed uh, uh, Islam in the whole country, including the South, but also they changed the language of, uh, from English, the British uh, colony as an English-speaking country, into an Arab country. That caused the black from the South Sudan to begin to fight because they were saying, we cannot be Arabized or uh, Islamized but also we have our own culture, and so that began the war. For many years, the North and the South fought. By God's grace, the international community, especially the U.S. government, and uh, thank God for the president, uh, then the president, George Bush, uh, imposed uh, some sanctions and forced the Khartoum government to negotiate with the South. 2011, July, we got independence. I mean, we got it because Alam had been involved in South Sudan many years before the independence yeah. when no other organizations were there. And in fact, I had the privilege to, be, to attend the independence. Now, 2013... He, he's, our, being, he's being modest by that. The president invited him as a representative of Alarm to go and be part of that celebration, actually. It was, it was an, an opportunity to, to witness what God has done in all these years. And because Alam had been involved in leadership, training pastors, and when there were no other trainers. And when I say alarm, you are part of it, by the way, um, because many of you, most of you have been with us since then, supporting us. But unfortunately, they got independence in 2011. December 2013, a new war begins, not between the North and the South, not between the Christian and the Muslim, but between the tribes. The president, uh, Salva Kiir, who is from the Dinka tribe, the vice president, who is from the Nuwe, those two are the major tribes in South Sudan. And there are over 400 tribes, and the two are the major tribes. The president dismissed the vice president. The vice president said that is tribal. He went on the side, began a, a war, actually the military. The government's troops were divided into the Nuwe became, majority of them became uh, rebel groups, and they fought, and so... Between 2013 and today, two million people have been displaced. They are in refugee camps in Uganda, in northern Kenya, northern Uganda, in uh, uh, um, 
Central African Republic, Ethiopia, and Eritrea. Two million, and then one million people are displaced within South Sudan. Some are under the protection of the UN. Others are in the rural area, in the village where even the UN and the World Food Program cannot reach. So two million people, refugees in surrounding countries, one million people, refugees within the country. This is just a picture of kids and a food line. Um, we're going to run out of time, so we're going to skip that story because I really want you to share this story. So this is a pastor's conference in northern Uganda, I believe, with refugees. Yes. And this took place uh, earlier this year or last mm-hmm. year? January, earlier this year. January this year. He, he just came from South Sudan last month. So uh, he makes many trips into South Sudan. It's, it's still a dangerous place, but uh, that's how my brother lives. I mean, that's how he lives. So tell us that story. Um, of course, like it happened in Rwanda, pastors are not spared from the calamity that hits their village. We get sick, we, we die, uh, but unfortunately when we, they go to the refugee camps, people still go to the pastors for help. But imagine some of these pastors, just like the pastors in Rwanda in 1994, some of these pastors, their villages had been raised down by the machine guns. In Rwanda, there was machetes and so forth. In South Sudan, there have been machine guns and murdered villages destroyed. And so they are now in northern Uganda in the refugee camp. So this is in a small town called Arua in northern Uganda. So what we do before we empower the pastor to do any other work for evangelism, discipleship, we need to help them heal with their own trauma. And so we gather them together. This was in January. We had about 78 pastors from... Uh, uh, the refugee camps in northern Uganda, five refugee camps, and these uh, South Sudanese pastors came together. We were dealing with forgiveness. One of the pastors, his name is uh, um, uh, Taban, so James Taban Molo, uh, had been fleeing from uh, the equatorial region with many families. His wife had separated uh, with the rest of the family. He was with the kids and many people from the village. They were going through the bush fleeing to Kampala, to the northern Uganda, suddenly they were ambushed and the soldiers began to shoot, the rebel, the rebel uh, began to shoot them, the newer soldiers. Um, the, no, 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 the Dinka soldiers, the government soldiers began to shoot them because they had been accusing them of harboring or housing the newer. This man, his son, 14 years old, was shot um, and uh, he picked him he heard him, he was running, and the son, 14 years old, died in his hands. And the man mm. could, uh, he, he could not run faster, and so mm. because he wanted to save the rest of the kids and many people in his village, many people from his church, he threw the, his son beside the road so he can save other boys and the other villagers. In this camp, I mean, this, is, this happened one year and a few months before uh, this conference. He had decided that never would he forgive the Dinka. Never would he eat. Never would he speak to the Dinkas because the killing of the people in his village and the killing of his son. And his pain was not, not just because his son was shot and he died in his hand, but his pain was that he could not bury his own son. The second day, he, he stood up. We had just had a break. He stood up. And he said, I have to confess. He said, I'm so sorry for my bitterness and anger. And I realized that God has forgiven me. That God gave his son, who was just, who had not sinned. His son died for me. 
He said, I have no right to be so angry, to be so hateful. I was questioning God's love. Now I'm so sorry. He said, today I have decided by God's grace to forgive the dinkers who murdered my son. He walked in the middle of the aisle and he went to find two of the dinka pastors who were there. He asked them to stand up. He hugged them. He said, I have forgiven you and your people. Now you are my brothers. Today, this pastor... Mm. Praise God. Praise God. Today, this pastor is preaching, is providing healing, trauma healing recovery. He's finding other pastors from the Dinka tribe to join him to preach forgiveness and reconciliation because truly, that's the only hope for South Sudan. That's the only hope, actually, for Africa when we Christians, we embody forgiveness and we reconcile even when people have done atrocities against us and our families. So Celestine was preaching this message of forgiveness and reconciliation, and that's the response. And I've been privileged, Greg and I have been privileged to serve on the alarm board for a number of years, and uh, we can share with you story after story after story like the one you just heard, how God has used this ministry to bring healing into the lives of pastors, but then after that to their congregations as they go out and minister to the folks that they have been trained to reach and that they love and care for. So uh, it's really an amazing story to see what God is doing through this ministry as they go and bring about uh, a message of Christ's forgiveness and reconciliation. This is a peaceful place. Uh, this is the Alarm Center in Kigali, Rwanda. Um, we put that picture up there because it's peaceful, but also because you may wonder what happens to the funds that you give to TBC. Well, 20% off the top goes to missions. Alarm is one of our partner organizations, so we support them. And uh, part of the building project that was there was part of what we did. And so, um, small part, actually, most of it goes towards the training of pastors and various things. So, so here's my brother preaching on forgiveness, reconciliation, actually has written a book on that concept, co-authored a book on it. And then uh, God took you into some deep places where you would have to not only write about it, but experience it. So tell us who we're looking at. Uh, the photo is uh, my father, uh, my late father, and uh, my mom who is alive, she's 85 years old today. Mm -hmm. And um, the photo, I took the photos actually a few, uh, few months before the killings in my village. Uh, this was after the genocide when the people had gone back to the country. Mm. So mom and dad were back in the village. The killings had stopped, but there were still some skirmishes that took place. And if I remember right, one day you got a fax. And why don't you share what took place? Uh, I, I was already at Dallas Seminary in nineteen. Uh, 19- uh, 98 January, I got a fax um, that uh, my family had been murdered uh, together with 70 people in the church where Benedict and I had been pastors. And uh, the fax was uh, um, talking about what happened and uh, the killing had taken place on December 27th, uh, 1997. So I got the fax on January 5th, just a week after the murdering of my family. It was three in the morning when I read the facts, and uh, uh, I could not believe. I began to cry. I began to really ask God, uh, God, where were you? I began to remind God, you know, reminding God that he had forgotten uh, that I have suffered because of him. You know, sometimes we think God can do us favor. But that night, I began to ask who did it. And that night, actually, I came to understand, really, what forgiveness is, the cost, who pays the price for forgiveness. 
It was that night when the Lord reminded me that uh, uh, when I became a pastor, um, when I was young, I was 24 years old, I had prayed that God would save my family. Because when I became a Christian, I, my family disowned me. I became a street boy. I begged uh, from, um, for food. Because my family were afraid, was afraid that if I came home, they would die. Because they were worshipping the ancestors. And when I became a pastor, I prayed, Lord, if nobody saved my village, please save my family, save my father, save my mom. And by God's grace, the Lord used me during the, our pastoral ministry. My wife and I, the Lord used us to lead my family to Christ. So I mm. led my mom to Christ and mm. my dad to Christ. I baptized them. And uh, so when I heard they were killed, I began to ask God, where were you when they were killed? Who did it? And God said, Celestine, you prayed that they will be saved. I saved them. And when they die, I was there with them. Mm. I was present, just like, praise God. The Lord told me he was present, just like he was present at the cross when his son was hung on the tree on my behalf. And then the Lord said, don't ask me who did it. Forgive them before you know who they are. Hmm. I struggled. I said, Lord, I can't forgive them. I need to know who they are. You know, I really wanted kind of revenge, you know. Sometimes you can revenge by avoiding the people who have done evil. Uh, sometimes you can be made a bad Baptist prayer, you know, I'm a Baptist <laughs> preacher, so maybe I can make, make a bad prayer. You know, sometimes we pray bad things to happen to our enemies. That's revenge. But the Lord said, you need to forgive them before you know who they are. You are asking me who they are because you want to revenge. And then I said, Lord, I forgive them. Of course, by God's grace, six months later, that's when I learned that my mother and my uh, niece survived because my mother fell down, she collapsed during the killing, and uh, between four and five hours, she was covered by the dead bodies. And so that's how she survived. And uh, um, God is kind of gave me back my uh, my mom. But a year later, then I found myself face to face with those who murdered my the rest of my family and my friend. And I was able to forgive them. In fact, I asked them to take care of my mom because that is the only way they can understand that I forgave them. So I asked them, one of them take care of my mom because my brother was pastoring far from, my other brother was pastoring far from, from uh, home and uh, Lena took care of my mom for about three years and it is his brothers and his relative who murdered the rest of my family. And so that's why the lesson God taught us but mm. it was a good journey mm. and God has redeemed um, that experience. Yeah, I've shared that story here with TBC years before and one of the things that really touched my heart is uh, when we went to Dallas Seminary to do, he was getting a PhD at Dallas Seminary at that time, and uh, they handed us this brochure right here, which I haven't seen in years, and I've had it in my files, and uh, pulled it out this week. And there are tributes to his dad, tributes to his mom, and there's a line in here that they wrote to his mom, and it says, Mom, we promise a gift to you. We're going to give to those who mercilessly, mercilessly and brutally killed you to love them, forgive them, pray for them, and care for their children. And I thought, who writes that kind of stuff? Who does that kind of stuff? Only somebody that's experienced the forgiveness of Christ. That's the only way you can do that. And so why don't you close by exhorting our folks as you did the last couple of hours about forgiveness and reconciliation. You know, uh, forgiveness, again, is, is not easy. Uh, forgiveness is... Uh, 
It's not something that uh, we, as human beings, we wake up or like, I'm full of forgiveness. Who am I forgiving today? Forgiveness is difficult, but at uh, the same time, forgiveness is possible. And when the Bible says, you forgive, it's not a request. It's not, uh, uh, God is not just telling if you feel to. Forgiveness for us Christians is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And God does it, uh, one, we, he knows that the only way we can have a relationship with God is because he has forgiven us. That's the only way we have a relationship with him. And when he forgave us, he did not forgive us and say, I've forgiven you, you go, I don't want to relate with you. It is when, after we have been forgiven, God reconciled us to himself. That's why we are sons and daughters of God. We have peace with God because of forgiveness and reconciliation. But it is not only that, that we have this relationship with Christ, with God, we relate with him. He knows if we don't forgive, when we are full of anger and bitterness and, and uh, we want to revenge, we have no peace with God. But also it affects our relationship with the neighbor. And so when God requires us to forgive, it's because that's the only remedy, that's the only uh, solution, the only medicine that can heal our broken relationships, that can heal our wounds when we are able to give grace and forgive one another. And so people say, but what, how can I forgive? You know, we are people of justice. We want to get revenge. We want to get even. We want to punish. But forgiveness is giving up the right to be right. Hmm. It's that possibility that we give up the right to be right because that's what God did. God gave up the right to be right when he gave his son to die while we had sinners. But secondly, forgiveness is to surrender our wish and our will to, to punish, to surrender that power to punish, to surrender that will to God, who is the right judge. Because when we go into revenge, my friend, we go beyond what has been committed against us. That's why my wife and I and our kids, we, we asked God, we made a promise that we will care for the children of those who murdered them, and we have. By God's grace, some of you have helped us to build a secondary school for, for girls in Rwanda. The first kids who went to that girls' school is the girls whose fathers and whose uncles murdered my family and my, my neighbors. Mm. Some of them, and I have paid for their fees in university. And that's the healing. Now, many people are getting together. So God really wants us Christians to be like him. That's the character of God. He's a forgiving God. He's a compassionate God. He says, forgive one another. If anything, and for anything, anything means even mm-hmm. killing your family. Mm-hmm. Or taking your cork, you know. Or eating your hamburger in America. Or, <laughs> you know. It is anything. And so forgiveness really is the only way we families, we father, mothers, we sons and daughters, and brothers and sisters, husband and wife, that's the only way we can find peace is when we can say, I give you grace. Mm-hmm. Not because I'm full of grace, because I live by the grace of God. Mm-hmm. I've been forgiven because of God's grace. Mm-hmm. And therefore, my challenge to all of us is, let's become like our father. And he has promised that he will be with us. The forgiveness we give is not our own. Mm-hmm. The grace he has given us Therefore, we pass it on. We become gracious to others, those who don't deserve it, because that's what God did for mm. us. Thank you. So let me personalize this. Some of you here today, and you may not have experienced forgiveness this way with the Father. 
It's through the blood of Christ that you can have forgiveness. Would you trust him today? And some of you have relationships that are broken this way and you refuse to forgive. Or maybe you refuse to seek forgiveness. And I pray you wouldn't leave this place without knowing who it is and then responding to that call. Uh, Celestin heads up the ministry that he founded Alarm. There are newsletters out in the hallway. You can go to their website. Uh, college students, they have interns on occasion. Uh, medical students, same, as, same for you guys. Uh, we support them if you'd like to give towards them. TBC, put Alarm in the column. We'll make sure it all gets to that ministry. And uh, now you can see why he's one of my heroes of the faith, right? Let's, let's thank him. Thank you. Let's stand together. Thank you. Father, it's with, uh, with humble hearts that we stand here. Humbled because we have a Savior who gave his life for us. Humbled because you've forgiven us. And humbled because you've called us to forgive. And Father, I pray that uh, we would be doers of the word, not just hearers. We've heard the word. Now help us to do it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.